On today's episode of The Leadership Drives. Oftentimes we talk about our work having an economic impact because when your kids are well cared for and in an enriching environment, you can do the things that you need to do as a parent. Creating that culture of constantly learning, that making a mistake isn't the end of the world, that misstepping, misspeaking, we all do it. And the question is then what do you do with it? There were people who showed up in my life when I was a kid where things felt as out of control as they ever could have, that showed up and created some control and created safety for me. And that was the thing that I wanted to create for other people. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to The Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to be virtual roadies and cruise with me as I take road trips across the country to meet leaders. I want to know what drove them into leadership in the first place and what is driving them now. Yes, you heard right. I drive to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to build real connections and to ask the kinds of questions that make the drive worth it. I love the puzzle making of being executive director. It's how Christine Lloyd Newberry describes her job and her commitment to it. She is the executive director of the Sarah Holbrook Community Center located in Burlington, Vermont. If you are leading a small and growing nonprofit and looking for encouragement from someone who knows your journey, this is your episode. As we talked about the many pieces of her job, she shared how she is building the workforce that she needs instead of complaining about the skills that she can't find. So far, her team has grown from nine to 53 people. We also talked about her commitment to doing the hard work of building the administrative infrastructure and cultural norms that will support the organization's long-term capacity. She even voiced the angst that every executive director has as she shared what it is like to live the organization's values, even when it means taking positions on diversity and immigration when those are positions that some of her stakeholders dislike. This is particularly challenging when those stakeholders are also part of the community from which the majority of her funding comes. As our time drew to a close, Christine shared with us glimpses of her personal journey. When you hear them, you will know exactly why she does this work. As you take this leadership drive with me, I hope you hear as clearly as I did the voice of a leader who is passionately steering a wonderful organization with a mighty bright future. So you were saying that you started in yes. March of 2020. Yes, so I started here in March of 2020. I was here for two weeks um, before everything shut down <laughs> and we went remote. Uh, I followed a you know, 20 plus year 
executive director in the role. Um, And she stayed on for until December of 2020, working on closing the capital campaign. Um, So I had the opportunity to not have to jump into the fundraising and all of that kind of stuff as it related to the capital campaign and instead get to know the staff and the programs and and all of that. That's a gift. Yeah, it really was. And for all of the headaches that COVID has presented us with, and there are obviously a lot of them. Um, I got to step into an organization at a point where there was an enormous amount of state and federal funding coming down for nonprofit organizations, particularly doing the work that we do, um, because families who needed to be able to go to work still needed childcare. Our mm-hmm. schools were remote. So we actually opened up for full day programming in a way that we had never done before so that kids had a safe place out of the home to go where they could access the internet, do their homework, do all of those kinds of things. Um, and families could still go to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So we spent a lot of, of 2020 um, doing exactly that, like showing up in whatever way families needed us to. Um, in the moment and it gave like that was the point at which we started to expand staffing and programs dramatically Um, and so even with organizations that were shrinking and limiting programs we were in a position because we had so much space to actually expand programming in a way that others weren't able to fantastic question for you Um, I want to ask a little bit about the overlap between you and the other previous ED because to have someone stay on that long isn't very common. How did you all divide duties? Did she just focus on capital stuff and you took over the rest? How did you manage that? Yeah, it very much was, uh, I think we had maybe two weeks, week and a half together. She had a lot of um, time that she needed to use up, right? So she had built a lot of time over those years. Uh, and I think as executive directors, oftentimes we stink at taking the time that is allotted to us. Uh And the arrangement that was made with the board, um, and I think was a great arrangement, was for her to stay on and just focus on the capital campaign. So she worked part time Mm -hmm. um, on the capital campaign, and then we worked on paying out her vacation time um, on the other side of that um, to balance out that 50%. Um, but having her here, and she still lives in the community, right? So having her around, Vermont is, is like Main Street, USA. Everybody knows everybody else. Um, it doesn't matter where in the state you are. Uh, so you're always going to run into somebody who knows somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, and so Lisa is still a part of the organization. Um, there are still times where I will reach out to her now, going on three years later, with questions. Or Would you recommend that other nonprofits consider an extended overlap period? Mm. So this is my second executive director gig. And in both cases, I had that. Good. Um, and there are aspects of that that have saved me in my role, that have helped me be successful. And there were aspects of that that were less helpful for me. And so I think a piece of it is is having really clear expectations of what does that look like and what does the offboarding look mm-hmm. like? Mm-hmm. Um, and who's making the decisions? Because I think there's some gray area in there for staff that comes up when the person who for the last five years I've been answering to is not the person I'm answering to anymore. And the answer now that I'm getting maybe is different mm-hmm. um, or the style is different. The expectations that. are different. Right. And so how do you manage that? And I would say that 
you know, not with any horrible detriment to the organization, but just thinking about like, where was the rub for me in both of those? I think it was mostly in those in that sort of context okay. where the challenges came. But I, you can't, these jobs are so big. They're so big, right? Like we, we're talking, having gone from nine staff to 53 staff and operationally what that looks like mm-hmm. um, and how much even now only, you know, not even quite three years in lives in my head already is dangerous, right? Like that's not good for the health of the organization. Um, And so when you're transitioning that for an executive director, there's gotta be a way that you thoughtfully transition all of that knowledge Mm -hmm. so that the person can be successful and the organization doesn't slide in in there in in the new executive director's attempts to onboard you know as you were talking my first thought was if you went from nine to 53 your administrative infrastructure has probably been a really interesting thing because i have a client they did something similar and what they realized when they got to about 60 and then they kept jumping what they could do with nine so to speak they realized that it was a problem with 60 and an even bigger problem as it got larger. And when you talked about getting the different answers, part of that is because, again, when you're small, there are things you can do. And as you're growing, you can't. Um, what has that part of the organization been like? Just the, <laughs> the, the nuts and bolts of administration. You know, I keep going back to thinking about how corporations in the for-profit world scale organizations. And it's a very intentional, thoughtful, planned process, oftentimes, right? You're bringing in consultants, you're putting the infrastructure in place before you do the expansion, all of those kinds of things. Nonprofit, you know, so much of the time we're flying by the seat of our pants. (laughs) Building the plane while it's flying. (laughs) Completely. (laughs) And so that's what we've been doing. Uh, That really is what we've been doing. And it's the thing that gets the attention is the thing that's on fire at any given time, right? So sometimes it's, uh, there's an HR issue. And so, wow, here's all of the infrastructure that needs to immediately get put in place to address this HR issue, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of how our policies um, and procedures have gotten built over the last couple of years, because we don't have the capacity to just do it all at one time. And so how do you prioritize? You prioritize the thing that's on fire, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so feel, felt like for the first probably year and a half um, playing whack-a-mole, right? Like wow. of what's the thing? Um, and now we're getting to a place where I do feel we've added some additional capacity at an administrative level to support all of the direct service staff that we added And so there is a greater capacity now at the administrative level to start dealing with some of those things. But really, you know, we're at a place where the conversation is we need HR. We need an HR department. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much of what we did was just coming into a digital era as an organization that was still very much functioning, you know, pen and paper Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. You know, so we've done things like bringing our payroll into the 21st century, right? (laughs) So now it's all digital. Um, Adding databases, Mm -hmm. adding shared drives for the organization that didn't exist before, like really like just fundamental structural items um, that that we've needed. And so 
we just did a complete overhaul of our personnel manual, right? And so that was a huge, you know, I think it went from like seven pages to like 40 some pages, right? Well, but I now we so. have a real okay. HR manual, mm-hmm. right? Um, and all of the things that go with that. And so now we're looking at, okay, what does the operations manual look like? Because there are so many moving parts and pieces and we just had a, um, a higher level staff off board and just the like logins and passwords and how do you manage that and what are the appropriate emails and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to use when you're creating a new account, all of that kind of stuff. And those are some of the places that we're starting to focus on now. I think that kind of just nuts and bolts work. That's the less than sexy stuff, but it's the stuff that allows you to operate consistently that people often overlook. And they don't see that sometimes for the value that it brings. And as you can see, look, just even in my own small business, having structure with the administrative roles that I have, onboarding and offboarding are so much easier now. It's like this is what the role does. This is how it happens. And you don't have to keep reinventing those processes. And it's essential to the success of the organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many places in onboarding and offboarding staff that if they go bad, they can go really bad. Really bad. And that's and that's dangerous. And, you know, we're in a we're in a field where We have state and federal rules and regulations that we have to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, We are a licensed organization. We work with kids, right? So there's all of these ways where if those two things aren't done appropriately, we can actually jeopardize our license. Um, And that's not, you know, the last thing we need is some silly silly, um, you know, quote unquote, uh, administrative oversight to be the thing that takes us down, right? Like you you think about license violations being some big, huge thing, but sometimes it can be the small thing. Um, And and I see see that a lot. Funny though, you're talking about just the environment you work in. Being someone who does HR and leadership, I tell everybody I know, being sued is just part of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Just get some liability insurance because if you do this long enough, even if you're not sued, the likelihood that you got real close is going to be high. Yes. How would you describe the culture here? Family, oh. just kind of formal. Well, how would you describe it? Constantly changing. Okay. Constantly changing. I mean, you think about, you know, when I, like I said, we started with nine staff. There were three offices <laughs> for those nine staff. Um, and we have... Um, our early ed program, an elementary program, a middle school, and a teen program, right? So we have those four programs that happen across three sites. So there's some siloing that -hmm. happens in that. Um, With 53 staff, my ability to get the entire staff together at the same time is like practically zero um, because there's never a time in the day when some of our staff aren't working. We run programs from eight o'clock in the morning until eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. Um, and finding time to bring everybody together is a challenge. So it's like twice a year that we get the entire staff together. Some incredibly skilled staff. Um, and when you think about the longevity with the organization, it's pretty limited because most of those staff weren't here in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're new newer staff. Most of our directors have been with me since we started, um, since I started or shortly thereafter. And there's a real camaraderie there. Uh, 
and I would say at our administrative level and within each program, there are these amazing relationships um, and ways that they support each other as teams. I would say that the larger culture is a thing that we're still figuring out, right? How do you go from nine to 53 and still feel connected to everybody? And so it's that larger culture um, that it's really easy when you're here in this building to say, okay, well, Sarah Holbrook programs are 15 months through elementary school, or if your only experience is downstairs in early ed, it's our 15 month through five, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas we have those big teenagers who are six, two, six, three, and coming and shooting hoops um, in the gym at the teen center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, really, we are that full scope um, of programs. But if you don't see them, it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to remember that. I think it's actually pretty cool that you're intentionally thinking about what you want that larger culture to be Mm -hmm. like. I think all too often that intention isn't there. And then it develops by happenstance and then sometimes you find yourself having to undo things that are counter to your mission or just simply don't allow you to have good interpersonal relationships with employees. Um, And since we're talking about culture, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. How would you describe the culture of the community that you sit in? Yeah, this is... If you live in Chittenden County, if you live in Burlington, everybody knows the old North End. Mm -hmm. And it's just this multiple blocks right here. Um, It is where there is the largest amount of diversity. I think we talked a little bit about this. Um, Chittenden County is where the the majority of diversity in the state of Vermont is. (laughs) Um, But specifically here in Burlington, it is a very close-knit community. Everybody knows everybody else. It's a wild mix of people um, who are in this community. And as an organization, we are... um, I don't want to say held accountable because there's a negative tone to that, but very much uh, the community has an expectation of who we are and what we what we do. Um, and none of it's anything that we're not willing to show up for, but it's definitely embedded in, in the nature of this place. Um, and so you look at different ethnic populations around us and you can, you can sort of follow the what refugee resettlement has looked like in the community um, and and nationally, right? So, so we have those different pockets of ethnic groups, um, all of whom come through here. You know, the young man who owns the, the property management company that we contract with came here from Azerbaijan as a, as a young teen, learned how to speak English in these walls um, and still now comes back. Um, the community here, there's not a day that goes by that somebody doesn't say, share their connection to this organization, which is really wild for me to think about because I am not from this community. Um, you know, I moved to Vermont when I was 10, which means I'm not a Vermonter. <laughs> Do they hold that against you? <laughs> yes. yes, you you have to be born here in, in multiple generations. Um, but I'm not a Vermonter. I don't currently live in the North End. Um, I live about 10 minutes away, but outside of the North End. Um, but everybody has a connection to this organization, and it's wild to hear. When you talk about that connection, how did it come to be? I know this organization has been around for a while, yeah. but when you say people expect a certain something from you all, yeah. what do they expect, and how did it 
become what it is? Um, I think in the simplest form, people expect us to show up for kids and families, and that's what we do. And that's what what we did originally. Um, and at that point, at that point, the immigrants who were coming into the state, it was and who were receiving services here, it was French, Canadian, and Irish, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what the that's what the demographic looked like. But you can look through pictures of this organization from the 30s and then go and look in the preschool downstairs and you can see such similarity in mm. the work. Um, so it was showing up with that early education, recognizing that that providing early education is a stepping stone for all kids. It's not the answer, but it is a stepping stone and every child needs access to early education. Um, and then it's the out-of-school time programming and you know a lot of times you know i mentioned this a little earlier with regard to during covid um oftentimes we talk about our work having an economic impact because when your kids are well cared for and in an enriching environment you can do the things that you need to do as a parent right like you Mm -hmm. can go to work you can maintain that employment um but more importantly I mean, yes, that's a piece of the work, but more importantly, it's it's every kid needs as many positive adult role models as they can get in their lives who are providing intentional programming for kids to develop healthy and well, right? That, like that's our that's the goal. And I think in some way or another, that's always been the goal of the organization. Um, I think it's been talked about in different ways as as theories and philosophies change but but that has always been the goal there has been there has also historically been a part of the organization because we are called a community center where the programming we had was specific to adults so it was english language classes it was you know just getting to understand all of the different things that are new when you come to this country from a variety of places, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I participate in the Vermont Language Justice Program and project, excuse me, and we were having a conversation yesterday about the work that they're doing as an organization to support new American families. And it's sometimes it's the basics of like, how do you use a stove? And how do you know to like, keep your shower curtain on the inside of the tub so you don't flood the bathroom? Sometimes it's those basic things. And so there was a lot of that kind of work that happened in this organization, um, historically speaking. Where Um, are your families um, typically coming from today? All over. Um, we're starting to see, we're starting um, to see a little bit of Ukrainian families coming through. We have some international families who actually come here as part of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, parents who are working at the university, okay. um, and then their kids come through our summer programs. Um, but we have kids from, my goodness. We're serving Vietnam. We're serving. Um, we are. Gosh, we have lots of um, Somali-speaking families. We've got Meme-speaking families. So Congo. We see a lot of families coming in from the Congo. Um, it changes constantly. It changes constantly, but it's fascinating. In the summer, we do a, we have an English enrichment program, which is an uh, not just an enrichment program, but an academic summer program for kids who are multi-language learners. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
to sit here in my office with the door open and listening to kids come through sharing their language with each other um, is is wild and fascinating um, and beautiful. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And it's amazing to me, and as I was thinking about meeting with you today, I'm like, you have, frankly, Lily White Vermont, and then this organization who's serving people from all around the world. Um, And then when you juxtapose that against our national politics, how do you do what you do? Do you face a lot of controversy and a lot of conflict? I think the reputation is that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that Burlington is pretty liberal, pretty accepting and embracing. But I don't know that. I don't live here. Mm -hmm. So how do you juxtapose what you do and then what's happening in other parts of our country. I mean, a whole bunch of people were just dropped off down the street in Martha's Vineyard. So how do you do what you do in that kind of climate? When I, when I talk about sort of gaining capacity within the organization, there's a huge role that we, I think, have to play that is about being advocates and activists in the community for the populations that we serve. Um, Burlington is, yes, Burlington is those things, and it's still racist. We're still in a very, very white state. Um, we live in a racist culture, right? Like that's that's the reality. It's, it's so embedded in our systems that we can't divorce ourselves from that reality. You know, we're not the only organization in this area. We can't serve all of the kids who who need to be served. We have partner organizations um, who are doing similar work with slightly different populations, but with the same sort of context, Boys and Girls Club and um, King Street Youth Center, to name a couple. And we work really closely together specific to those issues of like recognizing that sometimes the language in the community, there's been a, a rise in, in violence in the community of late. And there's some some narratives that have to do with the kids that we serve and the families that we serve around that that's destructful and harmful um and so part of our role is showing up and and calling that out where we where we can mm-hmm. um you know part of part of my role and my responsibility is to use the privilege that I have both of my role and of who I am, um, you know, showing up as a privileged white woman in this conversation, but being able to use my voice in that in that way. You know, we saw a lot with COVID, our families really, really struggling um, to access healthcare, to access tests, to access vaccinations, to be able to understand the language around all of those things. Um, and so being able to call attention to that was a, a really important way for us to show up in the context of what was happening in the larger community. Um, do you do anything in particular with respect to your own professional development and that of your staff to, to balance the advocacy work versus this concept? So, um, and I have a client that does harm reduction work, mm-hmm. is that they want individuals who have lived experiences Mm -hmm. um, to be included in the advocacy work for their community. And what I'm thinking, your organization, and then like we talked about before, the white savior complex, how do you guard against that? That's a big question. (laughs) I know, right? And if you have the answer, we'll charge how much for it? Wow. (laughs) That's a huge question. Um, I mean, in terms of 
professional development, I would say I am a lifelong learner, right? I will never, I just applied for my PhD. Like, yeah, I'm crazy. Um, Good luck but, <laughs> but it. But it is the thing, like, I... Know better, do better. There's always more to know. Um, and that's my expectation with our staff, right? And so it's, I think there's one piece, and I'm I'm dancing around your question a little bit, and I recognize that. Um, but the creating that culture of constantly learning, that making a mistake isn't the end of the world, that misstepping, misspeaking, um, you know, we all do it. And the question is then what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's acknowledging and moving on, whether it's misusing a pronoun or mispronouncing a name, Mm -hmm. um, you show up in the middle of it. It's messy. Life is messy and you do better next time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how do we, how do we hold ourselves accountable to that? And how do we hold each other accountable to that in the larger community? Wow. That's a really big, a really big question around particularly the white saviorism piece because it's a piece that makes me crazy and that I have to watch for myself. I can remember, you know, when I was really deciding, I knew very early what I wanted to do in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember my mom saying, ah, you just want to save the world. Well, I didn't want to save the world. I just want to make the world a little bit softer in the ways that people made it softer for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think that's true, right? Like it's so simple. It's so simple, but life is life is a challenge. And I think about, you know, as an executive director, I think about our board members and what does our board look like and what is the language that our board members use and how do we continuously push that when there is a little bit of the like golden handcuffs piece that goes along with it, mm-hmm. right? The majority of our budget is funded by the community. And so how do we educate a community while continuing to bring the money in to do the work that we want to do? And that's such an ongoing challenge. And it's how you show up in every conversation you have. It's about when you're willing to call BS when BS is what you're hearing. <laughs> right? And sometimes that can be hard. It to is. Call it, out. it is. It is. It is. Not only just in terms of personal discomfort, but like you said, sometimes you know what's at stake depending right. on who you call out. Yeah. I, I get that. I get yeah. that. And we live in a state where, again, just in terms of population, do we have diversity in our staff? Absolutely. We have diversity in our staff. Do we have the diversity I wish we had in our staff? Not even close, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so one of the things, you know, we've been in a position where th- th- as a field, workforce is a challenge for all of us right now. And so we have sort of pivoted a little bit and added an additional, we've added an education director, which is really a talent development um, director, but we're calling them an education director, but their focus is on our staff um, and our interns. And so we're looking at what does it mean to develop the workforce in-house? Okay. Um, because what a lot of times what we find is people who have passion, but may not have the background or education. And there are career ladders that we can walk people through in a really intentional way if, if we say that's the thing that we're going to do. So we support you know, right now we have 39 interns um, in the organization, right? So we almost double mm-hmm. um, our staffing uh, with interns. But that's a huge piece of like, 
I can complain until I'm blue in the face about not having access to an adequate workforce, but what are we doing to support workforce development? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the ways we do it. It allows us to actually bring people into the organization um, and up through the rungs of the organization um, in a way that's more inclusive too. Or at least that's what I'm hoping is going to bear out. That's my suspicion. Good deal, good deal. <laughs> I actually think it's wonderful that you brought on someone to think not only about staff development, but in particular, intern development. Yeah. Um, I think that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Because I think sometimes interns aren't planned for in a way that makes the organization better, let alone them better as professionals. Yeah. I think that's great. And I, th- I think back to my own internship. I went to school here. And I went to college here in Burlington. And I remember my internship and it was a pivotal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got my BSW here. And as such, I supervise all of our BSW students who come through here. We have a variety of different um, degree programs that students come through. But we always have a handful of BSW students. Um, and it's such a good reminder for me of like how impactful that experience was for me. And now sitting in this place of like, it is our responsibility to make that impactful for the next round of students who come through. Um, but part of our adding that position was a recognition that we weren't giving the thought to our internship program. And when we're bringing that many students in, there needs to be some intentionality um, to it, not only for our ability to manage it, but also how do we make it the best use for us as an organization and for students while they're here. You mentioned earlier that um, This is your second ED role, Mm -hmm. and I hear all of these wonderful things that you've been just, you jump right into. What was the motivation to even come to this organization for you? Uh, It was the next step for me. So my previous executive director role was a small nonprofit. I think we had 10 staff, um, and we provided contract services to a local school district. And when I stepped into that organization, um, it was at a time when the federal funding for programs like that program um, was disappearing. And so we lost half of our funding in my first year and a half with the organization. And that was just from grants going away. Mm. Um, And in that organization, we were, what, 85% grant funded when I started. Um, And so that was a really, really big deal. Part of the sustainability plan for that organization actually involved uh, working with the school district to have them absorb the organization. So I was the executive director, and then I became um, a director within the school district, running the same program, um, but within the within the school district's budget. And so that was our sustainability plan. Um, this was the opportunity to really take it up the next level in terms of my own career, right? Um, And executive director positions don't come up all that often. So when they do, if that's the thing you want, you got to jump for it. Jump for Um, it. Right? And so so I did. And here I am. Gotcha. Did you feel any guilt about leaving the other organization? It was so hard. Mm -hmm. It was one of the hardest. um, I'd been there for 10 years. So it was the longest I'd been in a position ever. Prior to that, I think I don't even think I had made five years. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, and 
in the 10 years that I was there, I had staff who were there with me that entire 10 years. And you can't work with people that long and not be close and committed and care about them. Um, and I couldn't imagine having another staff that I was going to be that close to. That was, that was the hard part for me. It wasn't so much leaving the work because I knew the work was in good hands, but it was leaving the people um, and the person who it's Vermont, we all know each other. Like I've said, um, the person who ended up, um, stepping into my role after I left is a dear friend and colleague, uh, and the person who I called when I knew I was leaving and I said, I'm leaving and you need to apply for this job. <laughs> um, so I knew that that was also in play. Um, and then I came here and I love the people I work with, right? I look around tomorrow. We have a management meeting. I'm leaving here for two weeks. I'm get, I'm like leaving the country, getting out of here. And, um, you know, we'll have a management meeting tomorrow for two hours. And there is nobody in that room that I wouldn't trust this organization with. Um, and they're wonderful and committed and amazing, um, people. I'm actually glad to hear both of those things that you were willing to leave your last role. I think sometimes people, have a whole lot of emotions that cause them to stay in a place when they know it's time for them to fly. So good job on that. And even better job on taking this vacation. Um, I can't <laughs> tell you how many people, I have a hashtag that I said I want to uh, really push more. It's called, I hope you had a good weekend. I really want to push people to take downtime because I think you're better for the downtime when you actually have it. I think it makes you run your organization better because you know that you're not going to always be there. So it's again, back to that structure stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I think it just makes you more creative. Absolutely. You know, we, I, we, we have a, a leadership team. It's our senior leadership team, and it's myself and our associate director, our education director, and our development director. And one of the questions that I posed to them as a group when we met yesterday was, how do we protect time and space for each other? Mm -hmm. um, and that is both our time off and in an organization where, you know, my door is legitimately almost always open. And I lose time in my day as a result of that. And some of that is really, really valuable. And others is other, other of that time is less valuable, <laughs> right? And if I add up all of the like random conversations that happen over the course of the day. And so how do we, how do we protect that for each other and not convince ourselves that busy is better? Yes. And it's taken me a long time to get to that place. And, and I feel like, I think there's a cycle to it. I, I get there, I have the understanding, I'm really committed to it. And then there's the backslide, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of like, how am I showing up for myself mm -hmm. in the moment um, and being that role model for the rest of the staff? And, you know, when I am working crazy hours, what does my conversation with our board look like of creating that transparency? And is that an indicator that we need to add capacity within our staffing? How do we, and, and helping st even our leadership staff recognize that if you're working a string of 50 hour weeks, something's broken. Mm -hmm. So let's figure out what the broken thing is so that we can fix it. Um, because I can't hire a new staff in your position at 50 hours a week. <laughs> It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's dangerous for the organization. And I feel like in nonprofit, we have this false narrative that we tell ourselves um, that 
I can shoulder it all. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've all been guilty of it at one point or another. Of um, I can take it all on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay. I'm just going to work a few more hours. Um, and that's not. I think you should be passionate about all of it, but recognizing that practically you shouldn't do all of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard you say... A few minutes ago, you worked with kids um, at your previous role. Yep. You work with kids here. When I first got here, we were talking, and you were talking about the program with teenagers. Mm-hmm. It seems that there's a common thing with kids here. Yeah. So tell me, why? what's your deal with kids? Do you just, like, hey, I like little people? Like, right. So, And then you mentioned that you've always known you wanted to do this. So tell me, how does this line up with your personal values? How do I get here? Yeah. Um, so the other roles that I've held, in addition, so... Going back to, you know, my early career, I worked with adults, neuroatypical adults um, in a day program. Um, I went to work for Child Protective Services as an investigator. That was where I burned out. I was there for about four years. Um, And that's when I went back to school to get my license in massage therapy. Um, Then I did programs and services for the state of Vermont for the National MS Society. So working with um, people who were diagnosed um, with multiple sclerosis and and their caregivers and families. And that was a primarily adult population that I worked with because pediatric MS is is a thing, but it's a pretty minimal um, thing in the grand scheme of of the disease. Uh, And then I went to work for Connecting Youth, working with kids. Um, When I started there, in that executive director position, I walked into the office and spent the first few days like meeting with staff and going through files. And I came across a booklet and I looked at the picture on the front of the booklet and I said, that's me right there. And literally there is a picture from a campaign that the Vermont Department of Health did when I was in high school. Wow. Very, very long time ago. So it was me with the feathered hair, long <laughs> hair, feathered look going on. I had the pegged pants and the three different colored socks, my white tennis shoes. Um, and it was a prevention program. It was a substance use prevention program, which was what the organization that I worked in the school district Mm -hmm. um, was. And as a teenager, I got involved with substance use prevention and uh, positive youth development programming in our school. At that point, it was called the Leadership Project. um, And the program that the Department of Health did was called Link Up, and it was about creating connection. and I flipped through those pages and there's me in workshops and in front of groups of people wow. like it's hysterical. And but it was that like full circle piece for me. Um, the thing that brought me to the work, we all have our we all have our our stories and, and the background. But, you know, as a kid who came through the system, my parents struggled with addiction Um you know, I spent a little bit of time in foster care. Like it was all of those things. So I, it's not a mystery how I ended up where I am. And like, there were people who showed up in my life when I was a kid where things felt as out out of control as they ever could have, Mm -hmm. um, that showed up and created some control and created safety for me. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that I wanted to create for other people, um, was that sense of like, 
it's going to be okay. And literally, like, that's what somebody said to me. You're going to be okay. This is really scary, but you're going to be okay. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's it. That's the thing that drives me in the work. And so it always looks a little bit different, um, whether it's working with somebody who was just diagnosed with MS um, or working with a young mom who's been reported to the state um, in Child Protective Services, but just sort of showing up in relationship with people is the thing that drives me. We all, I love bearing witness Mm. to those things, the best and the worst of it. The best and the worst of it. Yeah. Because then you also sometimes get lucky. Perhaps you get to see the improvement. Yeah. Indeed. 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 I actually think that's pretty beautiful that you want to hang in there with people that long. I like, I mean, I joke, I'm an introvert. And oftentimes, and I have a family of introverts, um, and we joke, like, man, I just don't like people. <laughs> but the truth is, is I love people, but I love people in the, like, in the small context, right, mm-hmm. where you really can get to know somebody um, and hear their story. Like, those are the things to me that um, that I love getting out of my day. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that. And that, that con- the connection. I totally get that. It's actually one of the reasons why I started the podcast. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to talk to people and get to know their stories. And I hated networking events. <laughs> you know, I'm like my worst nightmare. Yes. I was always the person at the event. He's like, she's been at the refreshment table a lot because she's not talking to anybody. She's just eating. <laughs> I hate those because I think real connection comes when you have an opportunity to have real conversation and that you're not trying to get anything from one another Mm -hmm. um it's more i just want to know your journey who you are and um i totally understand that i totally understand yeah and it it makes it makes the work worth it right i also get jazzed about a good excel spreadsheet (laughs) i have a friend named morgan you all might be so mad (laughs) (laughs) i uh i'm joking with my friends but but legit, like, <laughs> you will find me on my evenings and weekends watching YouTube videos about Excel. And when I come across the ones, <laughs> oh, like, <God>. so, <laughs> I do have that appreciation. And I and I love the, I do, I enjoy the, like, puzzle making work that is being an executive director, right? Mm-hmm. No day is the same. Sometimes I get to have those really deep, meaningful conversations, whether it's with staff or families or somebody out in the community. And other days I'm buried in the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's never boring. Mm-hmm. It's never boring. couple of questions. In this kind of work, what kind of conflict do you run into on a regular basis? <laughs> All kinds. <laughs> um Personalities. I mean, people are the hardest part of the job. Okay. Um, people, I get that. Pe- people are messy. People, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, people are messy, and so there's always conflict that comes up in that context. We are a group of very strong personalities, and so creating space in an organization for all of the personalities and the different ways that we show up in an organization. Um, you know, right now we have a really awesome respectful group of people most of the time that's what we have but sometimes that's not the case right and so then you get the conflict that come that potentially arises in in that context um when you're working with somebody's children Mm -hmm. there's never a point that there's not conflict Mm -hmm. um nobody is as good as as a kid's primary caregiver 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I know that as a mom, there's no way you were going to parent my child better than I parented my child. <laughs> um, and so being able to show up in honoring that for our families, even when what they're dealing with is hard stuff um, and acknowledging that our families are are the the best support and educators of mm-hmm. their kids, mm-hmm. even if it looks different, even if it looks different. Right. I hear you. I often tell people if we could divorce ourselves from the need to put things in the good and bad box and just see it for what it is, we'd be better off. Yeah. I want to revisit one thing really quickly. When you said talking about having strong personalities in your team and that kind of thing, how do you make the ugly conversation one that your staff is willing to have mm-hmm. when they need to have it? Because I think what we do sometimes, we don't like conflict. So we teach people to be polite, yeah. but then it turns into we don't say the thing that we need to say, whether we're talking about holding one another accountable, our inability as an organization to meet whatever benchmarks we've set. Mm -hmm. And I find that it's hard to balance respect versus if I say what I really think, you're going to take it as a personal attack, but it is your division that's falling down. So how do you do that part? One, show up in it. So as, as the executive director show up in it, when, when a thing is on me owning it, right, owning my own stuff and, and doing it in a visible way, observable way so that the staff, you know, I don't have a problem with my staff making mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, how do you show up and own it and do better next time? And so I try to show up in that way. Always. It doesn't always work, but I try to show up in that way. Um, And also lead from a place of, you know, I had a, we had a a staffing situation that happened not too awfully long ago that left me feeling very uneasy about some things um, and put me in a space where I think I was mis- interpreting things, some things that were happening among the staff. And so to sit down with those staff and say, here's how I'm interpreting this. Can you help me understand, am I on the right track or, or am I misunderstanding what's happening? Mm -hmm. And can we have a conversation? Mm -hmm. Um, Really uncomfortable conversation Mm -hmm. for all of us. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of it was the best conversation Mm -hmm. we could have had because it put the thing out on the table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then thinking about just in my supervision with staff, I am a, I love my one-liners, right? So when you're coming up to um, a difficult conversation, for me, the one-liner is the opportunity for me to catch my breath, get some perspective, think so that I can speak clearly mm-hmm. with staff. And so whether it's the like, interesting, tell me more about that. right but like whatever the thing is and so as I coach staff that's oftentimes because there's a piece of that that's just my style I have those phrases that I use on the regular that give me that space Mm -hmm. to be able to lean into a difficult conversation but I really am a fan of just naming it Mm -hmm. Um, I think too often we create drama where there doesn't need to be drama because we're afraid to just name a thing that ends up not being as big a deal as we make it out to be I get that. in our heads. And I guess on the other side of it, too, thinking about as a woman, 
in a leadership role, I always check myself. I write an email and then I go back and I take half of the niceties and apologies out of Mm -hmm. the email, right? And so there's the also in my own language, um, and I find both as I get older and as I step into increasing levels of responsibility in my roles, um, I am much more direct Mm -hmm. than I was, say, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's in that direction that I think in that very clear, direct communication, we're just the expectations. It's a, it's a setting of expectations and a naming whatever the thing is um, without judgment. It's a statement of fact at that point, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm not saying you're a terrible person because you did X, Y, or Z. I'm saying this thing happened and how are we going to fix it? Or what are we going to do next? I think it's great that you recognize sometimes that we just need to call a spade a spade. Um, because I find that with so many people, that dancing makes the environment more stressful um, and avoiding it. Just shoot me. <laughs> yes. Well, it makes it more stressful and confusing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because you add in all of the all of the stuff again. People, people are, are messy. Stories. That's what they do. Yes, they make up rationales for it. Yes, and then you have to dispel that and fix the problem now. Right, indeed, indeed. And and how do you identify when somebody is playing back a false narrative? Right, like that's a thing for me that that I struggle with. Of either I'm not recognizing what that false narrative is, or I recognize it. And now I have to figure out how to back them back out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and those take on a life of their own, right? And they can spread from one staff person to another in an organization. Um, and it goes back to our earlier conversation of culture. Like that can ex- implode a culture very quickly. Very much so. Very much so. I have a couple more questions. Yeah. And then I'm going to let you finish your, I'm going to leave for two weeks wrap up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you had to be in a reverse mentoring program mm. where someone either younger than you or with less experience than you had to teach you something, what do you think they could teach you? Any number of things. <laughs> uh, always learning. It's one of the things I actually love about supervising our BSW interns, right? It's typically not a place where an executive director, a place within an organization, a level within an organization where an executive director would be involved. But I love that I get to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get to do it because I'm the only one with a BSW in the organization. Mm-hmm. And I learn so much from them. And it's it like I get jazzed and I will sit here in those meetings and you can see I have a thing for books. And so it's not unusual for, you know, for like us to have a conversation and them to ask questions or for me to pose questions about their experience and sort of learning from learning from them because they're now I graduated with my BSW in 96. (laughs) Right. So um they're learning things that I didn't learn in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I get to I get to be a part of that with them here. Um, our staff, I'm not expert at the majority of things that happen within this organization, right? I get to bring the people to the table who are experts and who are really good at doing it. And so I feel like I learn on a daily basis from our staff, whether it's, you know, being in one of the classrooms and how best to handle a scenario with a student or, um, that's probably the best example. (laughs) Um, but I feel like our staff do it all the time. 
and and my role is to bring people who are highly skilled and passionate about the work. Um, and I'm passionate about it, but I'm not the expert in all of it. I'm, in fact, I think as an executive director, you have to be jack of all trades um, and sometimes master of none. Mm-hmm. I get that. <laughs> I get that. All right. And here's the, yeah. the last question. So I'm proud of you for going away for two weeks. Yeah. But I'd like to know, what do you do to avoid burnout when in the day to day, in the week to week? Because we can't go away every two weeks, every month. So how do you take care of you and avoid burnout right now? Meantime, right now, terribly. Okay. Right now, terribly. And I think that that's a thing that has for me um, both came out of. I mean, I stepped into this role two weeks before COVID hit. We were in a capital campaign where the organization was moving. We've gone through this massive scaling of the organization. Um, And so much of my time has just been the heads down, get through it. Um, Because there was just so many moving parts and pieces to the work. Um, And now... You know, and I've, I think I've said it a couple of times where there is a capacity where I am looking up and sort of feeling the like, ooh, there's some ruins in my own life right now that have resulted as um, because of that. And so now it's the and I've been here in my career before more than once. <laughs> okay. So now how do I hold myself accountable to that? And what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um in previous iterations, that's looked like I don't sit at my desk and eat lunch. I go for a walk or, you know, in previous roles, I would go to the gym during my lunch break. Mm-hmm. Um, but like finding what are those things in my life? Um, how is my life when I leave the office, what does it look like? Mm-hmm. How am I engaging with friends and family, right? And so you had COVID in on top of that, where we weren't visiting friends and family. Travel is a thing that I hold near and dear. It's a part of my my own desire to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Experiencing other cultures and going to wild, crazy places where um, where I get pushed out of my comfort zone and out of the norm. Um, and... So now with like some of that starting to come back, right? Like this is the first trip in a, you know, two and a half years. Um, And being aware of it and having the conversation with my colleagues, Mm -hmm. how do we protect that time? Mm -hmm. How do we keep this work sustainable for all of us? Mm -hmm. Um, And I need to be responsible to myself for that, but also look to the other people around me. That mutual accountability. Completely. Mm-hmm. Um, having an executive coach, mm-hmm. doesn't matter what role you're in or how long you've been doing the work. I mean, my executive coach is my work therapist. <laughs> right? Really, it is. She yes. is. And, mm-hmm. and it gives me some perspective so that I don't start developing false narratives for myself in the context of the work. I think avoiding burnout is always a thing that has to be front and center. If I'm not okay, if I'm not in good space, I can't show up in a good space for staff or for the organization. Indeed. So, well, I'm glad that you are kicking off your anti-burnout campaign in a couple yes. days. Thank you so, so much for your time this and your transparency um, and your patience with my fairy. <laughs> um, but no, thank you so, so much. I had enjoyed my time. I really have. Yeah. It's Indeed. been wonderful chatting with you. Indeed. Happy to. Awesome. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe 
share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of The Leadership Drives.